Hello, everybody. Um, welcome to another episode of Transfigured. I am here with Trip and Hank, although this is not a church father's discussion. Hank has been bashing Calvinism so frequently and so hard in the church father series that we thought it was time to balance that out. And uh, Trip is my friend who's also been on the channel multiple times. Um, and he is here to defend Calvin and Calvinism and all of its honor and dignity. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I should say I maybe I'm, you know, a little bit in between. Obviously, Unitarianism and Calvinism don't often get along very well. But, um, you know, I about 30 to 40 percent of my ancestry is uh, Calvinist Puritan. And even my dad actually grew up in the United Church of Christ, which is a congregational uh, liberal Calvinist church, although liberal back in the 50s and 60s meant something different than what it does now. So I, I have respect for my Calvinist ancestors the same way I have respect for my Catholic ancestors. And um, I know that Calvinism wouldn't be where it is if it didn't get a bunch of things right. Uh, but uh, maybe Hank and Tripp feels differently. So I don't know, Tripp, do you want to explain a little bit about your theological background and, and why that's relevant? Sure. Uh, yeah, I think that Calvinism? would be helpful. I'm... Yeah. Can you guys hear me? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, no, I think that'd be helpful. I'm one of those weird Protestants who, like, I studied... Um, uh, Aquinas quite a bit and so and I have great respect for a lot of the scholastic tradition of Catholicism but I also grew up Presbyterian um, like Calvinist um, you know memorized Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism and the Westminster Confession of Faith and those kind of things and um, and I went to Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte I apologize for being on my phone but my internet is down so I have to be on uh, my phone right now but instead of my laptop. But yeah, so that's that's kind of my, I'm one of those weird Protestants that's going to irritate both Catholics um, because I'm not a Catholic and then also Protestants because I don't think that, you know, all Catholic theology is, you know, an evil spawn of Satan. So that's kind of my my um, my general take. I'm, I'm a Calvinist. I think Calvin was wrong about some things. Um, and I'm also a Thomist, um, especially in regards to my philosophy. I think that I think that Calvin was wrong in jettisoning a lot jettisoning a lot of the the medieval Catholic theology. I think that he misunderstood it in a lot of ways. But also I think that I, I think that because I actually think that Calvinism is more compatible with Catholic theology than most people think. I think that there's Calvin and then there's Calvinists, and maybe we can make that distinction in a little bit because I think there's some descendants of Calvin or people who want to claim that mantle that have gotten things really wrong. And so I think that like Calvin is way more Catholic. If you just read Calvin or Luther, they're going to seem way more Catholic than a modern American evangelical will often like be comfortable with. So that's another thing that I want to talk about is like we can make a distinction between Calvin and Calvinists, and then. Um, and then we can get into where we think Calvin was right and where was he wrong. So that's that's where I'm coming from. All right, Hank, where are you coming from? Actually, that interests me because, you know, Trip, I follow Trip and I follow each other on Twitter, and once in a while I'll tweet. Well, until I got kicked off. I got kicked off like two days ago. Really? What did you get kicked off for? I I got kicked off because there was a video going around. I mean, this is us and aside. There was a video going around of uh, what appeared to be two abortion doctors playing with the carcasses of 
um, aborted babies and then just throwing them down. And um, I, I said. Uh oh. I think we lost him. I don't know what the punchline is. At least we lost be. him with a smile on his face. Oh, can you hear me now? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. You're back. Yeah, can, okay. Um, no, so there was a there was a couple of abortion doctors that were playing with like a carcass of a or carcasses of what appeared to be um, two um, two aborted fetuses, and um, and I said Nuremberg trials and then straight to the gallows, and that got kicked me that got me kicked off of Twitter for uh, incitement or something. So yeah, so we used to follow each other on Twitter anyway. Will you be back on Twitter or you got to? No, no, it's a permanent ban. I'm off of Twitter. Yeah. It's probably better for my spiritual life anyway, but yeah. Okay. Um, so uh, a, few, a few things. Um, I like the tease trip, but yes, I could, t I could distinguish between Calvin and Calvinist because the, the modern American version is completely goofy. Um, I, I, on Twitter, I follow what I call Wolf the Greater and Wolf the Lesser, uh, Stephen Wolf and William Wolf, um, and and the the craziness of Christian nationalism, um, and and you start seeing one of the things I tweeted and uh, Trip agreed was William Wolf basically saying man was not made perfect in the garden, and I said, oh, Wolf's a Gnostic, okay, the idea, what because you think that we're totally depraved, that we were totally depraved at the start is, I don't think even Calvin would agree with that. And, no. and, and, and I, I, so I don't want to straw man Calvin because I've read Institutes of a Christian Religion. Actually, he's a lot less Calvinist than the, the neo-Calvinist, especially in this country. Um, so most of the times when I'm going after hard after Calvinism, I want to be clear of who I'm going after. I'm going after right. the, the, a lot of bone, quite frankly, just a lot of boneheads. They're just horrible. Um, I mean, that doesn't stop me from saying there's Catholics. There's Father Martin, who's a Jesuit, that, you know, should be. Should I, was be gonna say, you guys got, I was going to say, you guys got the Jesuits, so we all have our Yes, we have the Jesuits. The Jesuits are are, yeah, are, are are form of Christian uh, uh, crazy. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And I continually apologize for the Jesuits. Um, so I think the, the idea is to really go after the idea, to discuss the ideas of Calvin and hear Tripp's position. And I may come in and say, well, you know, ask some questions, but this is going to be more of a, a good faith conversation. If if I had William Wolf on, it would probably not be so good of a conversation. But I would probably go after Wolf too. Um, yeah. For because I I actually doubt that a lot of these guys ever I I actually truly doubt that they actually read Calvin, um mm -hmm. or or any of the any of the reformers like in their original text. I think that that's one of the big problems is that a lot of people only read things that were written in the last fifty years, and um therefore you you get like a very weird picture of Calvin. But I guess maybe we could start. Um, yep. With you know what what is the definition of Calvinism like you know we we have the the five points of Calvinism so maybe we can go through that but I mean I guess you want to I'm I'm curious Hank what your how would you define Calvinism 
because Calvin is Calvin didn't say this is Calvinism, right? There was no right. like, hey, this is what Calvinism. And, and half of the churches that would be flying rainbow flags nowadays have Calvinist ancestry, right? So right. It, 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 sure. it's very it's very weird to define. You know, is Calvinism agreeing on five points of this? Is Calvinism really sticking to the institutes of the Christian religion written by Calvin? Is Calvinism having a theological or denominational family tree that goes back to Geneva? Um, you know, it, it, right. there, there are a bunch of different things that could classify as Calvinism. But all of that is to say that Calvinism has had a big and wide and varied influence. And again, I think that does speak to something about it that it is powerful and enduring and has had a lot of ripple effects in a lot of weird and unexpected ways as well as kind of more expected ways so yeah what what do we mean by by calvinism but that's so here's the thing if we talk about total depravity i could understand why a lot of people would buy into that we watch the world around us for example you know conversations I had with my late father-in-law who served in the army and fought on Pork Chop Hill would get you a very clear idea about total, about depravity, about the ugliness of the human experience. So I think there's a, I think a, a big fight we're having in our country right now is a Calvinist fight. Okay. Which is each side is totally depraved. Each side is totally evil. Um, I think that's unique in America. Um, and of course, so on, on depravity, I think that Calvin has some strong ground to stand on. Um, yeah, so I, I guess let's, let's, so like, let's talk, like, let's maybe do like a, a meta yeah. point. So the five points of Calvinism. Calvin never wrote the five mm -hmm. points of Calvinism. That's not a thing okay. that he ever, that, that, that wasn't anything that Calvin ever wrote. The five mm -hmm. points of Calvinism was written by his, um, by kind of followers of his theology. And it was a, it was a reply to the five points of Arminianism. Okay. And so, um, so that's one of the things that we need to be careful about is you can only understand the five points of Calvinism as being a response to what Arminius meant by his five points. And so that's one of the things that if you just read the five points, I think a lot of people get it wrong. They think that their, their total depravity or limited atonement are often the ones that people think that they disagree with. Um, but I actually think, I actually think irresistible grace is probably the hardest to swallow. Um, it once you understand them. Um, but mm -hmm. so the total depravity doesn't mean, um, Total depravity doesn't mean that we're. Can you guys hear me now? Did I break yeah, up? Yeah, you're Sorry. back a little bit. Total depravity Sorry. doesn't okay. mean that um, humans are as bad as we could possibly be. As uh, yes, exactly. So what it means is, um, it, it's a response to Arminius saying that there's some part of us that that is actually like um, not good necessarily, but pure. Um, and so what Calvin would say, no, every part of you before regeneration is tainted by sin in some way. Um, and so you're totally depraved in the sense that every part of you um, is, is kind of like infected. It's like the, you have a little yeast of sin 
in every part of you, in every, in your will, in your mind, in like everything that you do, it's tainted in some way by sin. It doesn't mean that everything you do is bad. It doesn't mean that you have no good intentions. It doesn't mean any of those things. It means that every part of you is in some sense tainted by it. And the way, the reason that Calvin says this is it's not enough to do the right things. Um, and it's not enough to do the right things for partially good reasons. Ultimately, it needs to be an act of good that is done for the purest of reasons, which is like directed toward God. And this is where I think actually Aquinas would probably agree with that because that's actually his point with the will. I mean, Thomas Aquinas says that the will always chooses the good, always, um, or at least what it sees as the good. And so if, if you pick up, if you, if you decide to, um, to shoot up with heroin, for instance, your will is deciding at that point that that heroin is better than the alternatives. Like it's choosing what it sees to be as the good. And that's why whenever we get the beatific vision in heaven and we see the good, the real good, the unfiltered truth, then you, you will freely choose that all the time because then all of a sudden you're unencumbered. Um, and so I think that what Calvin is saying is right now we're not unencumbered. Our will is not unencumbered. And in some sense, we're choosing maybe what we think is the good, but it's always tainted by this sin. You're never actually doing it for the purest of reasons, um, especially without the help of the spirit and regeneration. So total depravity doesn't mean that loving your children is wrong. It certainly doesn't mean that man's condition pre-fall like was also depraved. Um, that's that's probably burn someone at the stake for saying something like that. Um, but yeah, that, that's what total depravity really means is that we're all tainted in some way by sin. Even the good things that we do are not done for the purest of reasons. And so we're all like missing the mark in some ways. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, so do you want to ex explain a little bit more about what Arminianism was? And because wasn't even Arminius technically a Calvinist too? Wasn't this a, See, that's an argument Armin within yes. the Dutch Calvin Church or something? Yes, because Arminius and Calvin can. I mean, Arminius con considered and even wrote that Calvin was a a top notch theologian. He liked Calvin. Um, so. Arminius was within that tradition kind of arguing some of the finer points of like soteriology, like uh, the doctrine of salvation and, and what man's state is and those kind of things. So the differences between the two aren't as stark often as we make them out to be. Um, and so, you know, basically you can think of the five points of Calvinism and just kind of invert them. And those are the five points that Arminius had a beef with Calvin about total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonements, you know, irresistible grace and perseverance of the saints. So for instance, Arminius thought that people could fall away from the, from the faith if they were truly saved. And Calvin said, no, that's not possible. So that, that would be one example, but that was, Arminius was within that. Did Calvin. Yeah, go ahead. Did Calvin and Arminius overlap in time period? Did they know each other or was it that um, there were anti-Arminians that were um, that you could almost think of Arminianism versus Calvinism as a argument post Calvin that then shaped the Calvinist tradition afterwards in the trajectory? 
the the argue, the core argument between Arminius and Calvin happened post Calvin and Arminius. Um, uh-huh. But I believe I believe that there was some overlap, but I don't think that I think that I think Calvin was earlier. So I I think that maybe you can look that up. I can't remember. But the core, but five points of Calvinism happened well after Arminius lived, um, and so it, it's it's one of those things where we we're like imputing something that Calvin said that he didn't actually ever write down or explain. You have to derive it from his exegesis and his institutes and those kind of things. Um, and it was really a reaction to the Arminians um, within that that kind of Dutch reformed tradition. Um, and so I guess maybe um, let's talk about the five points, what people mostly think of as Calvinism. So you have total depravity, which we just talked about, unconditional election. So this just means you are not, you know, this God's, um, God's predestination of salvation is not conditional on how good he thinks you are. Um, it's unconditional in that sense. He's, he's choosing it. Um, limited atonement that, um, that, Jesus, um, Jesus's uh, atonement or sacrifice is effective for the elect, but not for the not elect. Um, that's what he came to do to save sinners that that truly that that, you know, choose him. Irresistible grace is a thing. I think the one that people mostly might have a problem with, but it's a weird one because in some ways it's like the most kind of to me, the be- most beautiful um, part of Christianity is that uh, once God does choose to work in your heart and regenerate you you will choose him that that will it's irresistible in that sense um and i think that's the thing that people mostly actually have a problem with but they just don't know it because they want to fixate on like kind of the some of the negative versions of calvinism in the sense of like total depravity and then perseverance of the saints this is just uh you cannot fall away from the faith once you're saved um if you are truly saved um and so those those are the five points and they were just a response essentially to um to arminius um and and what his followers had written about like summarizing his beef with calvin so did yeah. you were you able to find that out um for yeah for the record jacob our jacobus arminius was born in 1560 and calvin died in 1564 so arminius was only four years old when calvin died yeah um, yeah that's so a, they that, didn't I, directly I they, I thought, yeah they were, so they wouldn't have directly interacted. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So I, I knew that they were, I knew that Arminius was on, younger, but yeah, I couldn't remember how old he was when he died. But I don't, I don't remember. Yeah. There, obviously there were no letters between him and Calvin, the way there were with like Servetus or, or some of the other um, folks um, in that area. But th- those are the five points of Calvinism. But I just wanted to make the point. None of those points were written by Calvin. Um, in, in that sense, like he didn't say, here's the core of my theology and this is what you have to believe. Um, and, um, anyway, so I, I've been talking for a while, I guess, Hank, uh, do you want to, do you want to jump in? Like, uh, what do you think about the, like, which of those five points do you find like objectionable? Actually, um, limited atonement. So I, I find that now I'm not a universalist in saying that everybody's going to be in heaven and we're all going to, uh, um, but the idea is, is as I read the Bible as without trying to, so I should give my background a little. So um, 
it's going to be an interesting background because I was a nominal Lutheran. And then um, where, where Driscoll had a big impact on your life trip, uh, I became a Christian through Willow Creek through Bill Hybels ministry. Nice. Um, so Hybels was actually part of the Dutch Reformed Church. He was part of the CRC. Yes. He has and, the same denominal, not denominational background. Right, and left, and left. As a matter of fact, MacArthur thought he was a Calvinist, would come and preach at Willow Creek, and then found out <laughs> that Bill was not a Calvinist. It was <laughs> poor John. Uh, you know, um, is John was MacArthur even really a Calvinist, though? He has so many points of disagreement with Calvinism that I'm not sure if he should really count. Uh, John, John, I, honestly... John, John MacArthur would, is incomprehensible yeah. to me. I, I try to follow him. I really have a hard time. I, I really do. But to go on, so I, I was sort of catechized initially as an evangelical under Hybels, which was, I mean, the guy was just, you know, uh, Sun City, Willow Creek just went nuts. When I was going to the youth ministry, they, I, now I'm aging myself in 75, you had a thousand kids going throughout the whole Western suburbs. That was huge. Um, and so the, the idea of, of when I first started reading the Bible, I read it almost a, without a frame of reference. I just read it as a book. Uh, a, a few things stuck out to me, which I got in trouble with when I went to a Christian college was like, um, I'm reading uh, Genesis one through three and it doesn't make sense to me. Well, what do you mean? Well. You're telling me the world was made in six days, but there was light, and then there's the sun. Which which one is it? And by the way, when uh, uh, when when you have all these people, did 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 the sons of Adam and Eve have sex with uh, with mom to get all these kids? Um, where did they come from? Um, and, and finally, an old Bible professor said, "Shh, it's a metaphor." You know. Um, and then I started looking at, you know, I looked at it and said, okay, Jesus died for all. So what does that all mean? So when I, when I look at, so I'll get hit by, and, and Trip, if I'm straw manning it, just stop me. So I get hit and say, okay, Hank, look at Romans 9 where God hated X and loved the other. I said, okay. And, that you know, that was strong until I started reading the actual Hebrew, which is hated means just loved less. Didn't mean they hated. We we again we use transliteration when we get the English Bible or any Bible, right? It's not the actual right. We have we have to transliterate it. So Jesus in the actual language would be Jesua, okay? And there'd be other names that are in the Bible that are completely unpronounceable. So we have to the Bible was written. Basically, the New Testament was written in Greek because that was the language of commerce. That was the language that people used, not Latin. Okay, Greek. So, the the, the so when I look at limited atonement, the, the issue I have is God died for all. It doesn't mean that everybody accepts him. And I I look at the parable of Jesus knocking on the door. He he's knocking on everybody's door. It's not just knocking on the elect's door. He's knocking on everybody's door. He may know that they won't take, you know, I, I believe in the sovereignty of God, and I believe in that God has 
is omniscient, but he allows us in his omniscience to have freedom. But then you have to throw down one of the other tenets too to not be a universalist. And presumably you would have to throw down um, irresistible grace, Hank, because you're saying that there's yes. unlimited atonement, but the grace is resistible. Right. Yes. People I, can I not answer the knock on the door, so to speak. Correct. Right. Yes. That's where I so, think I, I actually. So those are the two things that I would knock down. Yeah. So like limited, but I, I guess okay. If we we're going to stick on limited atonement, would you say that God failed? No. Like if he if he knows that in doing it this way, um, this person is going like you you would you would agree that the foreknowledge of God is such that he knows. That if I knock on Hank's door, he will answer. And if I knock on Joe Biden's door, he's not. Just to knock on Joe Biden because I'm irritated right now. Um, but he knows that. And maybe he even knows. And this is this goes back to also like this is consistent with Catholic theology. You know, um, Aquinas talks about the, the predilection of God. That some people get more chances than others. Right. There's some people that have a road to Damascus moment. Like Paul is li literally sitting there like persecuting Christians and um, and God strikes him blind. He doesn't do that for everyone. He does that for some people. And so then the question is like, well, you know, did God fail then or was he knew, he knew that this was going to happen and he could have done it differently. And so therefore, when you say Christ's atonement was for all people, I would say the Calvin, Calvin would say, well, it's sufficient for all people in that there's not like a limited number of people that could have been saved, like hypothetically, mm -hmm. but the atonement is limited to the people who would end up being the elect. And so therefore, it was therefore intended to be that, not something else, and therefore God did not fail. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, I think it, it's really it's really a matter of like, can can God fail at saving someone? But but it, it, if I take your presumption, you, it's it makes absolute sense, right? Can God? I, I don't believe God one can fail, and I don't think it's a failure when He allows free people to make free decisions. I don't I don't think that Calvin would say that either. So that's okay. why I think that like I, I don't think that like limited atonement means that. I think that mm -hmm. we say I think what it's saying is it was never God's intention to save anyone other than the elect. And we can argue about election, but um you know, but it was never his intention to do anything other than that. So God did not fail. The Christ sacrifice atoned only for those he intended for it to atone, not for everyone. Um, so therefore God won, he succeeded in his goal. And so that's what I think Calvin, if you read Calvin, I think that's what he's saying. It's like, it's blasphemous to say that God failed, um, in, in trying to like save everyone. It would like, if, if we're saying that God meant for universalism to be true, um, and that's not true, then, uh, then we're left with no other, um, option other than saying, um, he failed at that. Right? No. So what we what we have to look at is 
let, let's go back to the beginning and let, let me make my uh, argument. Okay. So when God made the world, so every, after every day, he would say tov, T-O-V, good. But when he made man, he said something different. He said mazel tov, very good. Very good. Okay. Yeah. And so we know that God loves all his creatures. Doesn't mean all his creatures love him back or love him sufficiently. Okay. Um, however, the most... What we know is that when Jesus died on the cross, he died for all sinners, okay? And, and really, I, maybe I'm wrong here. It really doesn't get until, and Sam, you could correct me. So far in the early church fathers that we've read, um, until, we haven't gotten to Augustine yet. I think that what I'm saying would be seen as pretty much what, what the church felt. Okay, I mean, we have Saint Justin Martyr saying to the saying to the Roman Emperor that God cannot condemn a man who doesn't have the free will to choose him. Okay, now the so what we're really going to get on is free will. What does God allow? Right? See, uh, and in the disagreement that maybe you and I have, what's what's or may, it's probably not a disagreement. I just don't, in a hierarchy of God's attributes, love is his very essence. Right. Love is, is, is exactly who he is. If we have a Trinitarian theology, right, we, I believe Why the do Trinity, we have that? What? Well, you know, Sam, it's okay to be a heretic. We love you still. Um, yeah, okay. Um, but my Trinitarian theology is that it's, a, it's an interaction between the Holy Spirit, God the Father, and Jesus is an interaction of continuous love. Sure. Continuous love. Um, and here's where you can help disabuse me. Uh, you know, and obviously I went to a Calvinist church for quite a while called Wheaton Bible, where mm -hmm. the pastor and I got into it quite a bit because he asked me a simple question. He goes, can God take risks? And I said, yes. And he said, no. And I, my response to him was then, so what you're saying is that Jesus wasn't fully human. And if he wasn't fully human, you have an interesting Trinitarian theology because at the end, we need to rip out the passages of Jesus in the desert being tempted. And we need to rip out the passages in Hebrews about our great high priest who has suffered the same temptations that we have. And so, I'm not actually fighting you on this trip because no, uh, I, I understand the, I, and this is where I'm one of those like dreaded compatibilists um, mm -hmm. that I, I don't actually think that we don't have free will. I think that we do. And I think it's really free. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's always free will is always constrained by our nature. Correct. And so, you know, it's not, it's not a lack of freedom that makes a fish not be able to fly or a bird not be able to breathe underwater. It's, the nature right. of the thing. And so right. Christ was tempted in the sense that he was presented with a literal choice that he could have made, but according to his nature, he would never actually make that choice, right? Because he's perfect. And so um, that's 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 where like the Calvinist, I, I'm one of those people that was like, well, okay, so let's go back to then Augustine, mm -hmm. um, you know, Augustine's four states of man. So we have passe picare, that's us before the fall, right? 
um, that passe picari is just Latin for uh, possible to sin. We're not sinful yet. Our nature is not sinful, but it's possible for us to choose to sin. Then after the fall, we're non passe, non picare, not possible not to sin. And this is where it gets back into the total depravity thing, where it's very compatible with Augustine. Um, because after that point, after we fall without the, without the, you know, God coming to us and like working in our hearts, it's not possible for us not to sin in some way. Um, then once we're regenerate, it's po posse non picari, possible not to sin. And then once we have the beatific vision and we see God for who he really is, then it's non posse picari. It's not possible for us to sin, but not because we're not free, but because we see the good and our will will always choose that. And, and then Aquinas later plays with that. And I think that that fits in really well with what Calvin was trying to say is that, yeah, you're free. It's not that. It's just a matter of a, by your nature, you will like my, my kid is free to eat his broccoli and decline ice cream. But by his nature, that is not something he will ever do. Right. Um, and so right. his nature would have to change in order to do to choose the better thing for him. And that's I think what Calvin is trying to say with limited atonement and everything else. All he's trying to say is like your nature needs to be changed by God. And that's where, you know, Augustine's, you know, four states of man and then also Aquinas's um, predilection um, talk, I think, fits in really well with Calvin. I don't think that they're actually disagreeing on this point. Um, I think that they're they're pretty much in lockstep as far as I can see. Fair enough. I, I fair enough. I mean. I'm not going to become a Calvinist, but but at least I could say that your position is a lot more based on what I would call what the church fathers were up to and didn't get into this crazy. I mean, I, I'm watching Calvinists on Twitter saying, yeah, God loves sending people to hell, which then, of course, got one of my favorite theologians. Yeah, no. Yeah, no, I don't think that's true. I think that, right. I, I don't and I don't think Calvin thought that. I think that what Calvin thought yeah. is he loves everyone, which is, you know, right. again, I'm going to use Aquinas's definition. Loving is to will the good of everyone. Correct. And so um, I think that Calvin is saying is the people like you could he they will the good like God wills the good for everyone. But if someone freely chooses to reject the good. um because they they hate god that is um that is also in god's plan and we need to be comfortable with the fact that god chose that and that's where i think that like we can get into molinism and those kind of things in a little bit yeah. but um would uh i think that that's i i think it's trying to solve a i i think it's not solving the problem or the critique of of calvin when right. i don't think molinism solves a, solves any problems as far as i can see um yeah trip wouldn't Go it ahead. be wouldn't it almost have to make sense then that the saved and the unsaved have different natures in that case if they have different yeah. reactions well, to god's grace yeah, and that in, gets in, that gets actually kind of weird well no, not necessarily, it, unless you, well, I think you would have to say that God changed their nature. And so that's where the, the four states of man, God changed the nature from non posse, non vicari to posse, non vicari. And then that person is able 
to freely choose the good after and this and this echoes paul right you know not according to you or your works or anything else like that but according to him who chooses um and and that's why like you know <clears throat> we have to wrestle with paul there because when paul says things like you know why does he still blame us for who um for who resists his will paul's response is not oh no you're misunderstanding me mm -hmm. what he says in response to that is who are you to talk back to god right he, he, he doesn't even entertain the question um in that sense and so i think that like we can we can be a little bit too coy in what paul was responding to there and trying to like wrap ourselves around but i was like paul literally answered that question if if this is if what you're saying is right who who resists his will why does he still blame us and he's like you have no right to ask that question because mm -hmm. it is like you are you are freely choosing um it's just according to your nature and so i think the calvinist position would be at that point that god says that god the whole through the holy spirit regenerates someone's heart their nature does change so that they can freely choose but it's not um so like in in a sense you would say yeah they have different natures but the natures isn't because they were created with different natures or anything else like that i think that would be the position hmm um i i, I think a few yes i think we but I think you got to read Romans in light of 9, 10, and 11. Um, so we have 9, basically, at, at first, what Paul's really addressing is his own people, the Jews. Right, yeah. Okay. But at the end of Romans 11, he goes back. Uh, I just, and again, this is a great, uh, this is a great discussion. So um, not as good as my discussions with Sam, but then what is? Um, <laughs> did I say that, Sam? Um, although, Sam, everyone at my church says you talk too much and don't let me talk enough. But that's okay. I said that's because Sam's smarter than I am. Um, Strangely, I don't get that feedback. <laughs> <laughs> um, but at the end, it's... Um, let's see. See, I get I get yelled at in the YouTube comments anytime I talk to Sam because I talk too much. <laughs> um, I, I mean, one thing that I think is interesting about Calvinism comparing it to the early church fathers is just the focus on soteriology itself. Yeah. Right? yeah. Whenever people start bringing up Calvinism, immediately it's basically a, a giant soteriological discussion. But a lot of the early church fathers and the church writings, Hank, that we've read, don't focus on that subject at least not in the same kind of way it's almost like it's in a different i don't know frame of reference or a different set of priorities or, or something altogether and no, i think, I think that's, that's one right. thing that that's interesting and in and i itself. think that's no I, I think that's a really good point sam because ultimately a lot of what luther and calvin were reacting to was the monergism synergism debates um and and those kind of things it's salvation by faith alone you know and and those kind of things so like that is very much what the reformers were focusing on is that the catholic church went awry um in some of the things that they were teaching uh, around soteriology so it, it is a hyper focus on just this subject um in, in a lot of ways and the other stuff it, it's weird to me because when people like 
they talk about it, I was like, you you guys should read Luther or Calvin at some point because they're going to seem extraordinarily Catholic to our yes. ears. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, and because they were they were they were they were they were picking on the soteriology of the Catholic right. Church, but in terms of like the Eucharist and everything else, they're like, no, we're pretty much in lockstep with it. Like we right. might quibble on transubstantiation versus consubstantiation or something like that. But you're you're gonna you're gonna go to uh, Luther and Calvin, and they're gonna be like, "What in the world are you guys talking about?" And, and even the Anglican Church, like even the Henry the Eighth, was, I mean, he was hyper Catholic. He just you know wanted to get his divorce. So, oh, oh no, we found out. So a, a great story that Tripp and Sam, I think you guys would like is, uh, as my mom and father got older, they, uh, my dad, who for a long time. Uh, Resisted that irresistible grace and then uh, did not. Um, a great memory of my dad is when he died, he had his uh, Lutheran pastor only preach the uh, gospel message. Nothing about his life, just about who he was, who about Jesus was, not about who my dad was. And what was interesting is after he died, we went to my mom's church down in Indiana. And of course, I sort of being um, a politician, when the guy at the time, this was before I became Catholic, he said, do you believe that this is the actual body and blood of Christ? And I'm like, yeah. My wife's like, no. And not you what can't have Sam, the Eucharist. Yeah, Sam, what do you think about that? What's yeah. your position on the Eucharist? Um, I, I tend to be pretty re pro real presence of some kind. I think, yeah. that it, I think that it's sort of like hooking up to a spiritual reality or something like that. So like it's, spiritual presence? Spiritual maybe? presence, yeah, yeah, of some okay. sort of kind. And which ironically is probably the closest that – one of the topics that I would most agree with the way that Calvin re-articulated yeah, compared Calvin's to the position. Catholic Church. Yeah. Um, and what ironically, Servetus also held a very high view of the Eucharist, and it seemed to be one of the few things that Calvin and Servetus actually didn't really disagree about <laughs> and, and and probably most agreed about in terms of yeah. slightly well, changing the, the emphases and the tone of transubstantiation, which always seemed to confuse lay people into some sort of mysterious physical transformation, even though I don't think that's what uh, Aquinas himself was really trying to communicate. I, but I think it always this seems is to get, tend to get misunderstood that way. This is where Paul Vanderclay was helpful when he had his conversations years ago with Brett Salkald. Yeah. Brett did a great job. And then I just decided to read his book and then COVID hit and our church just completely shut down. And my daughter who had become a Catholic said, you know what, mom and dad, our church is open. Well, we'll mm -hmm. go to your church. And I remember the first time we went, my, uh, my wife goes, there's no gobbledygook here. It's just liturgy and scripture. And so we started going and I, my wife's more of a mystic. I'm more of a um, up here. Uh, although my brother would say that someone dropped me up here. Um, <laughs> um, but the, the point is that I, I said, okay, I need to start. This is why Sam and I started the church fathers. I'm like, I have no clue of our church history. But I know that what I was taught, and, and I want to say this as lovingly as I can, a lot of it was BS. That was really bad. Okay. Well, it, yeah. Well, okay. So, and then this is where I think there are. And that's where I have respect for you, Trip, because you understand church history. So we may di disagree. It's the, where I get 
you have problems. When I attack a Calvinist, I'm not sitting there saying, in my mind, I'm thinking of Trip Parker. <laughs> okay. Um, I, in my mind, I, I'm going to tell you that I'm thinking of Wolf the Greater, Wolf the Lesser. Um, a lot of guys yeah. that say some really uh, nonsense, and you sit there and go, this is a bunch of junk. Yeah. Well, so this is okay. So, two criticisms that I would have of Calvin is that a lot of the reformers needed a point in time where things went wrong. Mm-hmm. Right. And so they, they, they needed that because they also want to claim apostolic secession. They want to change, you know, they want to claim church tradition. They want to claim all of that kind of stuff. And so if you're completely divorced from it because you've just left the Catholic church, um, well, you need to, you need to find a point that the Catholic church went wrong. Um, and Aquinas and the, the medieval scholastics um, were a convenient um, place to lay all of that blame. And so I think that one of the reasons that kind of the descendants of Calvin or just Protestants in general um, are ignorant of church history is because of that, is because mm-hmm. they they wanted, they said, no, everything went wrong after Augustine. Like read Augustine and then everything after that was a mistake until the Reformation. And then, then we're, we're starting to get things right again. And I think that that's wrong. Um, and I think that Calvin actually thought that, um, and Luther really thought that. Um, so I think Calvin was wrong there. The other thing that I think that the, the quibble that I would have with irresistible grace is that Calvin never really said this, but um, the, his descendants definitely say this, is that the irresistible grace is a point in time. It's a point in time where I change you into something else i I change your nature to to go back to sam's question earlier and i don't think that that's quite right either um and this is where like i i would again bring in aquinas because there is a predilection that um what aquinas would say is like he believed in the doctrine of election that people are chosen um he believes that everyone is given sufficient grace in order to choose god and some choose not to but some people, for some reason, God has a predilection to continue to pursue them and continue to give them more grace, more chasing, and that kind of thing. And so you could say that is true of, say, children that are born into Christian families, mm-hmm. right, Who, whose parents take them to church and uh, got them baptized and, you know, talk to them about God and read them the Bible and those kind of things. Those people have been granted a certain kind of grace that not everyone has. It doesn't mean that the people that didn't get that are unable to become Christians, but it like there's a certain kind of grace that some people get that is different than the grace that other people gets. And so that's what Aquinas would say is God does demonstrate that. And in some cases, it's really dramatic. Again, going back to Paul on the road to Damascus, like not not everyone's going to get struck blind and forced to see Jesus. Right. That's that's not going to be a right. thing that everyone gets. And um, if some people got that, they might be Christians and um, they might. Um, and, you know, and the, the, the grace that they were given while sufficient um, it won't be enough to convince them or make them Christians. And so I think that that's where um, 
you know, I think I could quibble with Irresistible Grace a little bit in that sense, where a lot of Calvinists see it as like a point in time, whereas I see it as something more like a a continuation of something that God is doing, because I think that maybe it takes multiple, it's like multiple doses of antibiotics eventually cures the infection. Multiple doses of grace over time um, helps bring one to, to Jesus. And so I think that's, that's where I would quibble a little bit with the way a lot of Calvinists see irresistible grace. But I think that that's, I think, I think the, the point still stands though, is that if God chooses to keep chasing you, A, he doesn't choose to keep chasing everyone and he's not required to. And um, if he does choose to keep chasing you, eventually he'll catch you. Um, and and that's, that's, that's the, I think the, the right part of irresistible grace. So I'll stop there, but that's. That is the best explanation I've heard for irresistible grace because the explanations I heard for irresistible grace was almost like God was raping someone to make them a Christian. It's like he just comes in and bam, right? Yeah. Again, I, again, what I, but this is very not Calvin. This is very not Calvin though, because it's not as if like Calvin thought that it's, that's that's a very like american almost like baptist evangelical like you're you're whacked and then you're healed like born again kind of yep. thing and i was like yep. that is not at all the way that the reformers thought about this um and so anyway so i would just say that i, I would like to clarify no, th that this I, is if that's this what is an excellent by your race, i disagree but no, this i is... think that there is a way to yeah so I, that's why i wanted to have this conversation with trip and we should have more like this because what i'm getting is nuance Okay, I like nuance because yeah. at the end, you cr we have done more damage by this kind of, because people sit there and they look at it and then you get, of course, one of my favorite sayings of all time was G.K. Chesterton. You've heard this, right? Yes, Chesterton leprosy. hated the Calvinists, yeah. Yeah, leprosy <laughs> has done more good for the world than Calvinism, okay? Yeah. And and he didn't. You know what? But I bet he said. I bet he said it with a smile on his face, though. Chesterton oh, was Chesterton was the the like the best version of a cheerful curmudgeon. Um, yes, that I, he was a happy warrior. Yes, he was a happy yeah. warrior. Um, him and George Bernard Shaw would have uh, dinner after they had contentious debates. You know. Yeah. Um, no, I, I, I. I one of the things that I hope our church channel does and having interviews like this does, Sam, is start breaking down the – I'm not going to go to the Christian Dumais nonsense, but I think American evangelicalism is a really weird strain of Christianity that, in essence, just a little more back, back, background. When I started my company, I started with a, a, a friend who was a lot older than me, 15 years older than me. He went to Dartmouth and he was a history major, really sharp guy. And he said, stop acting like history started the day you were born. Okay. Stop acting like that. You need to read and you need to ask questions. You need to see. And, and what, I think one of the things that we need to understand is our faith is a lot more deeper so that in essence, the argument is a, is a nuanced argument of irresistible grace where Tripp, I want to steal man that you're saying it could be 
like Paul. It it could be, yeah. But, but it could be. Um, uh, um, but even Paul, even in that story, it wasn't like a moment in time. Paul was struck blind. Like Jesus shows right. up and says, why are you persecuting me? Shows him that. It's not like Paul's like, oh, yeah, I was wrong. I should have done that. Um, right. He was struck blind. Like it, it's not. He it, still had to go that. into Damascus. He still had to go exactly. to the guy's house. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So there was there was still like a thing that God was yes. doing during that. And it's not like a. Yeah, we don't need to have this like caricatured version of it. And I and I agree that um, American mm. evangelicalism for like it has many strengths. Like there's a right. like like we should be evangelical. I, I this is one of the things that I have a problem with about like the Orthodox Church is that it's not it doesn't evangelize <laughs> the way that I think that it should, if I'm going to be frank. Mm -hmm. um, but um, they, they do seem to like one of the tendencies i think or maybe the one of like the dangers of being too evangelical by that i mean like wanting to go and evangelize is you want to dumb things down and make it much less nuanced than it really is because then it's easier to say right just pray the sinner's prayer you'll be a yep. christian then yep. and and so you want to do that and I don't think that's right either. Um, and so that's where I, I think that, it, you know, American evangelicalism is peculiar in that. Um, but it, it's weird because the the giants of the faith, like I dare anyone to read Luther, Calvin, Spurgeon or anything else like that and get anything like what we're hearing from like Owen Strachan and those guys. Like I, I, I dare anyone to read them um and and think oh yeah this is a this james white is totally right on aquinas like this is crazy to me oh um i i mean it, i i i could i could go nuts right i mean i've read spurgeon i my yeah. wife and i love spurgeon okay his, his stuff on the psalms is fantastic mm -hmm. um but then i watched james white and then the old hank wants to come out the guy that got in fights and i yeah. just want to punch him in the nose yeah and then I don't want to stop punching them in the nose because you're, I mean, I'll give you a good example. Um, so uh, I watched Reason and Theology. You have a Catholic and he's interviewing, uh, of all people, William Lane Craig on Molinism. Mm. And William Lane Craig at the end says, you know what? Thank you for this conversation. It was only about what we were supposed to discuss. We didn't have our disagreements on issues of theology. You asked me great questions. He goes, I was with James White, and the guy just wouldn't stop bringing in ad hoc arguments and driving me nuts. That's all he does. That, yeah, anyway, we don't, we, we don't need to make this a James right. White. But, uh, but my question. point is yeah, that people uh, see that, and they go, ugh. And I think the, the, the most important thing, and I'm going to have to cut this off in a few minutes. I've got a, an appointment. But... I think that the thing is to have more conversations like this because um, and why I, I love having my conversations with Sam, people will sit there and go, how could you have these conversations with this biblical Unitarianism Unitarian? And I'm like, because at the end, he comes from a strain of Christianity that's been around for a long, long time and has a lot of intellectual heft and Honestly, if you asked me about the Trinity 10 years ago, I would have been a heretic. I would have been more like uh, a transformer, right? That when you put God the Father, God the Son, and, and the Holy Spirit together, that's when you really get God. 
Right. Okay. Yeah, so a lot of people think that, or they or they have some kind of weird um, form of like modalism yes. around the Trinity. Trinity, and um, yeah, like a lot of people don't understand these things, and the Trinity is a mystery. Um, but yeah, no, I agree. And the other thing is, you know, one of the things that I think is important is that, you know, uh, we we talk about like so like um, Sam brought up, you know, you're talking about, um, you know. Calvin and Servetus and their disagreements. The thing is, is that we only, you only pay attention to the things you disagree on. Right. And so like, I bet that Calvin and Servetus, uh, they agreed on a, a lot of things and that's why they were talking. Um, you know, it's not like he was talking, uh, Calvin wasn't writing back and forth with a Muslim imam or anything else like that. Like the reason they were writing is because probably they agreed on quite a bit and they had particular areas of disagreement. And because of that, um, we, we tend to focus and be like, oh, they were polar opposites. They disagreed on everything. And I bet actually, like if we just sat down with Servetus and asked him his theological beliefs, other than the things that he was disagreeing with Calvin, we'd probably be like, yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah. and, and, and so I, I think that that's another thing that we do is we focus, it's kind of like Sam with, you know, publishing peer reviewed papers. No one publishes the null hypothesis yeah. Right. That's just not a thing. Um, and we don't we don't we don't talk about things we agree on. We talk about the things that we disagree on, um, which is useful, but it needs to be done in good faith without just like calling each other names and those kind of things. And that's why I like talking to Sam as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, some of the people on my channel will say that, you know, I have a propensity to call names, but I, that's OK. I don't when when I. I have a propensity, just given my background, to call names to people that I think are are gaslighting or arguing in bad faith. Um, I think, you know, I can listen to, you know, I listen to Paul Vanderclay every day. That's, you know, him and Bishop Bear, and people say, gosh, that's a weird grouping of people that you listen to. And it's like, yeah, but I'm learning from both. And... And I think the, the, the issue is that our faith is a lot deeper. You know, um, uh, like I said before, when we went to Catholic Church, right, um, we're like, this isn't anything that we were told by our Protestant friends that Catholic Church was like. It was funny, I should have known better because some of the most interesting people I'd met on theology were Catholics. So I should have been a little more grace-filled about how I interacted, you know, with them. And I think that we need to have this grace to understand. And I, I'd like to do this again, Sam, with Trip, maybe in a few weeks, is to start talking about just certain aspects of Calvinism and get and, and Thomistic philosophy and Augustinianism. Because I haven't read much. I read Augustine 40 years ago in college. You would get a lot more out of him now. Oh then, yeah! Every get, time I read wait, him, yeah. But by, by the time by the time we get to him, and you'll have had the whole you know early church church father era context building up to him, he'll yeah. make way way more sense in context than um, than like because I read him in college too, um, and like you know hey the confessions is a good book, 
there's a lot that that doesn't take a lot of context to understand, really. But the, when he gets to doing theology, all of a sudden it sounds really weird, right? Like those last couple chapters in the in Confessions are like, where? What's this? What's going on? Yeah. Well, <laughs> and the other thing that I would say is, um, yeah. So like for for you know people that are following your church fathers, which I watch by the way, um, mm -hmm. I really enjoy it. Um, I've been reading along with you guys, but the um. The thing that people need to understand, like as much as a, an Aquinas stan as I am, which I am, um, um, Aquinas was better as a like synthesizer of different philosophies and someone that would bring things together. Um, so he would kind of marry, you know, Greek philosophy with Catholic theology and those kind of things. And he would he's really good about that. Um, and, yep. and probably the best ever and at understanding what everyone was saying and, and bringing it together. So, and that's useful. Mm -hmm. Augustine is probably the most brilliant person ever to write in the history of the church. He is absolutely astoundingly insightful. He not only like was knocking down heresies left and right, but he was also um, inventing entire new genres of literature in doing it, um, you know, with the confessions. Nothing existed like the confessions before right. Augustine. Um, so, I mean, Augustine truly is not just one of the giants of the Christian faith, but truly one of the intellectual giants that shaped the entire Western world. And I think that a lot of people think of him as just, oh, he was he was a bishop that was smart and wrote some things, but he's way more than that. Um, he, he, he truly did kind of shape Western culture um, in a lot of ways. And um, and Aquinas, like Aquinas stood on his shoulders um, in, in that sense. And so I think that like once you get to I encourage everyone read Augustine read the church fathers and then reread augustine because he is absolutely fantastic um and he's weird though unless you understand the context, the context of the world that he's yeah. living in yes because he's he, not he an is, evangelical protestant especially no. the way he approaches scripture like uh, his no, allegorical not. type stuff will confuse the heck out of a modern protestant unless you understand right. his context for sure which is weird because again like the reformers wanted to go back to augustine right like let's forget aquinas in the medievals like augustine was where things um after augustine everything was a mistake and you're like if you i mean it, it's funny to me that the kind of the intellectual descendants of the protestants if they read augustine they would be thoroughly confused yep. um and yeah. uh, they would not they, they would not understand what they would disagree with him uh, especially hermeneutics. hold on yeah, i plead would be the biggest I, I plead guilty I, I said i decided to read gottfried leipzig on monodology yeah and, and then i wrote a paper asking my philosophy professor if a gonad was a monad <laughs> well you have two of them Hank. Um, what? Yeah. I, I, well, I, th I think another interesting thing to think about with respect to Calvinism is like, you know, mm -hmm. it's it's easy to think about all the soteriology stuff and the theology stuff, and that's important. But there does seem to have been something particularly enduring about Calvinism's ability to um, create institutions that True. that last. And he seemed more gifted at that than any of the other Protestant reformers, and that the institutional legacy of Calvinism through the last 500 years has had a really big effect. And I almost don't quite know why that is. I'm not sure Sam, if I can say Sam, Calvin I'm going to have this, to, this and this. Right. Sam, I have to we, go. We can wrap up in just a couple. Yeah, right. Sorry about that. I have to go. I have to go to a meeting right now, okay?
All right. All right. Okay. You guys wrap up. I'll talk to you guys later. Bye bye. Yeah. Sounds good. No, uh, Sam, I think that, um, I think that's a, that's a really good point. And I think my hypothesis is that because Calvin was so hyper creedal, um, in nature, like he was so focused on the, a, the scripture and exegesis and confessions and those kind of things that lends itself really, really well to an institution where we can all kind of rally around the thing that we all believe, right? And so you could just kind of copy and paste a lot of this theology and you can make it Anglican, you could make it, um, you could, you know, kind of, it's kind of like a virus that would get into like the Anglicans or the Presbyterians or whatever. You could be a Reformed Baptist and take a lot of Calvin's kind of methodology um, and and do it that way. And so I think that that's why he was just hyper-focused on like the rational exegesis of the It's text. very orderly. Exactly. Um, and in ways that like, you know, and I think that as you go away from that, you get less um, evangelical. Like you, you get into some of the more like mystic stuff that's not easy to uh, to evangelize, right? That's not easy to plant a new church and explain, well, okay, well, what does this church kind of do? And you're like, well, Calvin, you're like, we're going to teach the Bible. We're going to do this. We're going to do that and everything else. If you're an Orthodox, you're like, well, we're going we're gonna to take the Eucharist. What does that mean? Well, it's a mystery. And we're going to worship the Trinity. And what does that mean? Well, it's a mystery. And it's like, it, it, in some ways, it's hard to evangelize that kind of a system, especially in a hyper Western context. So I think that that's why is that he was just so clear and, and like um, ordered in his writing and his thinking that that really lends itself well to copy paste um, mm. and bring into institutions. That's at least my hypothesis. I don't know what and, you think. And also all the time that he spent in Geneva and right. shaping the government of the city of Geneva and interacting with that and really creating a new kind of political religious synthesis than the Catholic one. And that that transformation of politics and economics and all that stuff that was happening in Geneva was a big effect of it too. Although I think yeah. one thing that's interesting that we often forget and don't really know is that for the first couple hundred years, Calvinism was anti-evangelical in the sense that they did not sure. believe in missionaries and right. that um, they were only a movement within pre-existing Christendom. And in yeah. fact, when sometimes when in the new world in the U S or before it was the United States, when the first time the Calvinists or the, the first time the Puritans saw Moravians who were Protestant missionaries, they got mad at them and they thought that they were secret Catholics because they were trying to evangelize the Indians and only Catholics right. were trying to evangelize the Indians. The Puritans didn't do that because why would you right. evangelize? And there was right. a, a transformation of the emphasis on evangelism in the early 1800s um, right. that really reshaped Calvinism to be more evangelical. But for 300 years or almost no, it was a, it was, was anti-evangelical. I mean, that's, yeah. it, that's not what they thought they were doing. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's not what Luther thought he was doing either. He didn't think that he was evangelizing or making new Christians. He thought that he was reforming the church. Christendom. That's what we call it. Yeah. So, yes, exactly. Yeah. He, he did not think that that was his goal. Um, but it, it, in a weird way, it does lend itself pretty well 
um, to uh, evangelizing because it becomes easier to explain when you have like an ordered view of, you know, what it is that you're doing. Um, and so like previous to that, anyway, this is another conversation that we could have like, but yeah, previous to that, Christianity was spread through politics. That's how yeah. it was spread. And like, I think that, you know, Calvin was in some ways like being really effective at reforming, but these were already Christians, but like, I mean, we can go back to Charlemagne and those kind of things. That's another thing that in this whole like Christian nationalism debate, I think that there's a really uncomfortable conversation to be had if we're looking at the history of the church, because we're like, we have to admit, okay, yeah, the early Roman empire, the Christians had no power um, and they were being persecuted and all those kind of things. Eventually the Christians did have power yeah. and then uh, they were not shy about wielding that power politically in, in any way, shape or form. Um, I mean, and evangelization a was basically a form of colonization. Exactly. And, yeah. There and you can see that in the in the early exploration age and, you know, after Columbus, all of the evangelization of the New World was done by the Catholics. Um, right. You know, the Puritans yes. come over and they keep to themselves. And, you know, there's a pretty strong divide between them and the Indians where the Catholics are like, no, we're, we're going to evangelize this. We're going to turn this. We're going to turn Mexico, Brazil or wherever in, into Christian countries by right. changing the population to be Christian. And that was something that the Catholics did. And it was a mix of religious uh, conversion and political conquest. And it was the same thing. Correct. And, and yeah, exactly. And, and that's just a continuation of what happened with what happened with Europe. Um, yeah. And, you know, like, like I said, like, you know, Charlemagne, like, you know, kind of putting down the Germanic, um, you know, peoples and that kind of stuff. It was like, OK, convert or die. That that those are your choices. There's there's no like yeah. second you know, way or, or whatever, even like whenever, you know, um, Alfred uh, reconquered England, it was when he when he conquered, you know, and when he's like invading, like, you know, Northumbria or something like that and retaking England um, from the from the Danes. Like it was lose your crown or be baptized. That was yeah. the very yeah. much the ethic. And so like they just kept doing that. The secular religious divide didn't exist for a lot of these people. And so really the I feel like the, the the Protestants and the Puritans and those kind of things, they were mainly trying to keep their head down because they didn't really have political power or anything else like that. They they the monarchs and that kind of stuff weren't going to come for their back. But but yeah, this was all a political game. And that's that's another conversation maybe we could have is christian nationalism is it is it bad actually or is it is it something that's like very much christian um you know i don't i think that we could we could juxtapose early church versus medieval like you know and then post enlightenment um church and and talking about that anyway we got off topic sorry sure and i do think that actually brings up another interesting sort of strain in calvinism is sort of a progressivist spirit that things can be made better and yeah. that we can do that kind of through reason and will and, and reformation. And then that that example will then inspire emulation and copying and that we can make Christendom better and more of what it should be. And you see then Calvin himself, obviously in the Puritans. I mean, the Puritans wanted to come to America not to convert the Indians, but to give an example of what Christendom should be, to be the city yeah. on the hill, and then hopefully the old world will see the new world and then emulate back across the ocean and continue the Reformation. 
Right. And, and this is something that I think that a lot of, um, you know, we on the right, especially uh, criticize this kind of utopianism um, and, and that we see on the left where they're going to build the Tower of Babel and, you know, make everything perfect and fix all the world's problems through government or whatever. But there are strains of Christianity that we look rather highly regarding like it's not like we look at the puritans and be like oh what awful people like usually we when you say puritanical it means like prudish or you know whatever or like too rule specific or whatever but like we don't think of them as like morally deficient um and in fact though that's what they were trying to do they were trying to create um essentially a christian utopia um and just you know yeah. if i could just get away from the bad parts of society and it's like that benedict option kind of idea get away from that and then we'll create real christendom right here um like that's a part of our past too and i think that like a lot of like you know more conservative christians like me like we like to knock the left for its utopianism but um we the have utopianism is is somewhat traceable to the calvinism exactly it is uh completely true um and so like you know we have to own both parts of that for sure um anyway i've done a lot of talking sorry about that no that's okay i i i fully expected that you and hank would do most of the talking but anyway yeah i i should get going soon near the the top of the hour but um and but i thought that this was good i mean hank takes a lot of pop shots at calvinism during our church father series and uh hopefully this whole uh tone him down or make him think twice i try not well, to take pop shots at people that aren't there and like i said i have my own complicated feelings about calvinism and and when i was in college i was in very evangelical ministries that were pretty restless and reformed adjacent reading tim keller yeah. and john piper and stuff like that and so i mean i don't think it's all bad but then when i read about michael servitas <laughs> then i'm like ooh, <laughs> that, that, that was pretty bad that's that is that is probably the the one the like i mean that that one is um probably the thing that complicates calvin's legacy the most is that whole episode and yeah. um yeah but uh yeah for sure i mean it, but like i said i think that there's there's Calvin and then there's Calvinists and like the derivatives from it. And so, you know, if, if I could, I could quote a Jesuit all day to make fun of Ro Roman Catholics and that wouldn't be fair to Roman Catholic theology. Um, and, you know, I, I understand Hank's um, uh, frustration with some of the strains of Calvinism, but I don't, I think it's, I think it's mainly just like reacting. It's like, it's nut picking, right? It's finding like the most egregious like statements by Calvinists and then reacting to it is what a lot of people do. And, um, and I get why you would do that because those are egregious and they're, they're silly statements. Um, but, um, but Calvin was a much, much more nuanced thinker than I think that, you know, you would, you might get the, uh, the impression of on Twitter. Um, so mm -hmm. just, uh, I, I would encourage everyone to like, read the church fathers, read Augustine himself, read Calvin himself and Luther himself, and then, and then figure out what you think about them. Because I think that Calvin, I think Calvin had a lot of really, really solid stuff that, that we benefit from. And, and, and in some ways, and especially in America and the, and like the English speaking world, it's the water we swim in. Like most Anglicans don't know that Calvin was essentially the chief theologian for the Anglican church. Like that, right. that was the system. Like a lot of Anglicans don't know that because they're not Presbyterian. 
Um, and so they don't as enthusiastically just like read Calvin, but that was the teaching of the, the Anglican church was essentially a Calvinist um, strain of, of Protestant um, theology. And so a lot of people don't know that. A lot of people don't know that like they're actually mm -hmm. in some sense swimming in Calvinistic waters. Yeah, 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 that's true. Um, I think one thing that was interesting between Servetus and Calvin is that Calvin was very um, Augustinian, as we've already mentioned, and Servetus was like, go earlier. <laughs> yeah, right. Servetus did not like Augustine that much. He's like, you need to read the even earlier church fathers. And Calvin seemed relatively ignorant of them. And I think didn't true. seem to know Tertullian or Irenaeus or Justin Martyr in any no. of the same way. He seemed to have been mostly content to really focus on Augustine as his source yeah. for early Christianity. And that was the source of tension between Servetus and Calvin too. Yeah. No, I think that's right. I mean, again, like I think that like a lot of like their their motivations were to find the point where things went wrong and start over. Right. Yeah. And so, Whereas Servetus like, was get back to the very beginning. Right. It's much a very more different. It, restitu reform, you know, go back to the early Christianity. Whereas Calvin was, where did we get off track and how do we exactly? And, and I think that's where how do we merge our, our train back to that and then keep going? Exactly. And I think that that's where, um, you know, I always say that you're more Protestanter than I am. Um, and uh, and that's why, because that is a Protestant ethic. Like, let's go back to the beginning. Let's like, you know, we go solo scripture and then we can read from there and those kind of things. So it's like go back to the beginning is very much the ethic. But that was not the reformers ethic necessarily like they the like, magisterial yes, they, reformers. Exactly. And so you know, Luther and Calvin, no, they were content to go back to Augustine and and just like start over and come up from scratch almost um, from there. Um, and so it, it's an interesting like difference between them. Um, but I, you know, I'm, I'm not that I, I disagree with Calvin and Luther on that. Um, I don't think that going back to just Augustine is where things went wrong or right. I think that there's stuff that was good before it and stuff that was good after it. And I think that you know, that's another thing that would be peculiar, I think, to most Protestants is reading the reading like the, the you know, Calvin and Luther directly is how how Catholic they would seem like yeah. they they want the church tradition. They just want it to start at Augustine and skip to them and yeah. then just like move on from there. Right. And, and in some ways, some of the things they say about Catholicism are harsher than we would ever feel comfortable. Saying oh, today. Luther literally but, called him the Antichrist, like the Pope, the Antichrist. Yes. Yeah, exactly. But but in many ways, they're much closer to Catholicism than we are just by their environment and their proximity. So it's this weird right. sort of thing that they seem both more Catholic and more anti-Catholic than Protestantism right. is now. And it's just a different combination right. of the ingredients. No, if you if you attended one of those the churches that were run by Luther or Calvin, you would walk in and probably not even understand that it wasn't Catholic. Um, yes. and like, it wouldn't seem different, but if you went against, um, their dictates, they would burn you at stake. So like, yeah. that's, that's the juxtaposition, juxtaposition that we have with them is like, they're both like way different. And then also like way harsher, um, mm -hmm. than, than modern, uh, especially American, I think Protestantism, but anyway, yeah, 
it, it, this is a this is a fun conversation. Thanks for thanks for indulging us, Sam. No, no problem. All right, yeah, we should get going, but uh, yeah. we can do this again. Thanks, Trip, for your time. Sounds good. Yep.